have your Bible with you or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew in front of you, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, this morning we will be reading verses 14 all the way to 29. If you're a guest with us, we've been working our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark for quite a while. Watching Jesus on the move, thinking about him as our king. Today, in fact, is our last Sunday in the Gospel of Mark for a little while. I'll talk to you more about that uh, shortly. But today, Mark uh, does something interesting and takes the focus away from the king. This is the only story in the Gospel of Mark that is not directly about King Jesus. So we are going to think together about why Mark does that as we read about the death of John the Baptist. With all that in mind, let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 29. This is the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Someone has changed the channel. We've been watching Jesus on the move for quite a while, and you may have thought that you were watching a family program, something suitable for all eyes and ears, a family show, 
where you could keep the kids on the couch in the living room and watch Jesus on the move. And all of a sudden, Mark turns into HBO late at night and shows us things that we wouldn't want little eyes and ears to see and hear. Why does Mark bring us here? Why do we stop watching Jesus on the move to see this scene? When you see something you're not supposed to see, it makes you feel dirty. When David saw what he wasn't supposed to see and acted on it, he felt the filth and shame of his sin to the point that his prayer was, cleanse me, O God. Make me clean. Mark, friends, wants you to feel the shame and the filth of this episode. He wants you to see enough to know what is going on. Friends, it's a picture of the corruption that sin has brought to this world. It is a picture of of what all of our hearts look like in our lives without Jesus. James 3.12 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that we were talking about being on mission. And I left some of it hanging because John, Mark connects Jesus sending his disciples out on mission to this episode in John's life. What Mark is doing, as one writer puts it, is showing us the climate within which our mission takes place. This is what Mark is doing. This scene of John the Baptist's death and all that happens around it is a picture of the world to which Jesus is sending you. Jesus is sending you to proclaim the message of his kingdom in places like this, in a world like this, to people who respond to the truth of the gospel like this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, we are to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. Today, brothers and sisters, I want to do two things. This is an important text at an important time for us. And let me just say this in passing. Since COVID hit, I have intentionally tightened up my sermons, made them a little shorter so that everyone can exit promptly. I have given a little bit of time each Sunday away, and I'm going to uh, ask for some of it back this morning, if you know what I'm saying. So I want you to stick with me. I'm going to do two things. We're going to do a quick survey through the story and get the feel, what Mark wants us to feel. And then we're going to ask, why did Mark bring us here? I'm going to give you two reasons that Mark gives us this story, this episode. So stick with me. It's going to be a minute before we get there. But let's do a quick run through the story. Jesus is on the move, and King Herod hears about it. 
He's asking the question that everyone asks in the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? And he works through some of the routine, standard answers. Could be one of the prophets. But he keeps going back to one. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, this is not a religious belief in the resurrection. Herod is haunted by a guilty conscience. He's paranoid that John the Baptist has turned into a ghost in the form of Jesus who has come to torment him for what he did to John. Verse 17 and following, Mark shows us why Herod is so paranoid, why he is so guilty, what happened. It starts when Herod throws John in prison for running his mouth. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You guys stick with me here for a second. I've been looking at this all week and it's still confusing. Herod's family tree will make your head spin. Herodias is not only the wife of one of his brothers, she is also the daughter of one of his brothers. So that means his new wife, Herod's new wife, is both his sister-in-law and his niece and his wife. Now, I've lived in Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia, and everyone I'd ever met would tell you that's weird. But that's not John's problem. John tells Herod, he's bold enough to say, that is against God's law. Leviticus 20, verse 21, Moses writes, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. So John, as the prophet of God, holds the king accountable. And Herod's interesting. He he respects John enough to listen to what he has to say. He's he's okay with disagreement. He's interested in John the Baptist. That's an interesting guy. But Herod's new wife, she's ready to kill the bigot. But Herod stands in her way. That is until Herod's wife slash sister-in-law slash niece finds her opportunity. Holy Jews did not celebrate birthdays at this point in time, but that doesn't stop King Herod from having a good time on his birthday. He brings over all the VIPs for a night of pleasure. And after all the boys in the room have enough to eat and drink, Herodias sends in her daughter to entertain the boys. We won't go there, but if this scene came on your screen with the kids in the room, I hope you would turn it off. It's hard to keep up, but who is this dancing in the room? It is the daughter of Herod's brother and his niece-turned-wife, which makes this little girl, are you sticking with me? The little girl dancing in the room is Herod's niece, his great-niece, and his stepdaughter. And he's had one too many. 
says to her more than once, stumbling over his words, ask me whatever you want, little girl, and I'll give it to you, anything. So this little girl goes back to her mom and says, what should I ask from the king? And the mom says, we've got him. Go tell your stepdad that we want this prophet who's been running his mouth about our marriage. We want him dead, and we want him dead now. Herod is trapped. He likes John, but he likes respect more. He likes listening to God's word, but he likes his reputation better. And so Herod gives into the pressure, the peer pressure, the society pressure, and he executes a man whose only crime was speaking the truth of God's word. And at the end of the story, what happens is the man who baptized Jesus in the Jordan loses his head as a gift in exchange for a night of indulgence. that is what has happened to the greatest prophet ever. Why? Why does Mark bring us here? Why do we have to see this? I've tried to gloss over some of the details, but do you feel the ickiness of that night and what happened in that room. There's two reasons that I want to give you today why Mark brought us here. Two reasons for the interruption. The first, the death of John the Baptist prepares us for the cross of Jesus. This episode prepares us for the shame and the filth of that morning Jesus went to the cross. If you were here with us in Mark chapter 1, way back when, you'll remember that God uses John the Baptist to prepare his people for the coming king. John's preaching and baptism set people up for the ministry of Jesus. But John the Baptist prepares us for Jesus in another way. John the Baptist's death, his execution, prepares us for the crucifixion of our king. John joins a long line of prophets who did the same thing. That's why Stephen, when he's being executed, says in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. There's so many parallels in this nasty story with what happens to Jesus. It's not the last time Herod is put on the spot to execute an innocent man. Like John, Jesus comes to proclaim the truth. He confronts people, the people of Israel, with the need to repent for breaking God's law. And like Herod, we've seen it in the book of Mark with the crowds. People are interested. They want to hear. They don't want to receive, but they want to listen. And like Herod's wife, Judas 
finds the right moment, the right opportunity to betray Jesus. Jesus, the night before he's crucified, is brought to none other than Herod, who is trapped again. Luke 23, verse 8, Luke tells us, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod has not changed. But then in verses 14 and 15, Pilate, his partner in crime, says, After examining him before you, I did not find this man, Jesus, guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And so both Herod and Pilate worked together and refused to release Jesus. Why? Because of the pressure. Because of what the people wanted. Because of the respect they had from the crowds. And so they put another innocent man to death. And like John, Jesus is killed and Jesus is buried by his friends. But brothers and sisters, that is where the similarities in our stories end. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's two differences between John's death and Jesus' death. Jesus' death, Peter tells us, was for us. It was in our place. But the other difference is that Jesus' death was not the end of the story. John's friends bury him and never see him again. But three days after Jesus is buried, God raises him from the dead and Jesus appears to his friends. In Acts 4.11, verse 12, the apostles tell us, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friend, God has brought you here to show you the only way to escape the corruption and the guilt and the shame that dominates our world. The gross feeling that we feel when we have sinned and distorted God's law and rebelled against him, God sent his son, Jesus, to take that on himself, to become the filth and shame himself so that God could crucify it and deal with the shame. He did that because there was no way for you and I to clean ourselves up and make ourselves right with him. Jesus makes it possible for you and I to be clean and to be right with God. And as Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 240, the call is this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, we don't save ourselves by doing good works. We don't save ourselves by washing ourselves and making ourselves clean. We do it by repenting, turning from our life in sin, the shame of our guilt, and putting our trust in what Jesus did, the righteous for the unrighteous, and how God raised him from the dead. Friend, if you turn from yourself and put your trust 
in the cross of Jesus, you will be saved. Do that today. But you need to know if you do that. And if you have done that, if you have followed Jesus, put your trust in the cross of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, somebody may have never told you this before, but you need to know what you are getting into. You need to know what you are signing up for. This is the second reason Mark brings us to this passage. Not only prepares us for the cross of Jesus, brothers and sisters, it prepares us for the cost of following Jesus. Zoom out. If you still have your Bible open, you can look at Mark chapter 6 and see what Mark is doing. Mark often does things in the big picture. You, you have to look beyond just one verse to see what he's doing. In Mark chapter 6, this is where Mark has been taking us all along. The first paragraph in verses 3 and 6, Jesus is rejected by his own people in Nazareth. Then you move to the section we were in last week in verse 11. He warns his disciples and readies them for the day that they will be rejected and tells them to shake the dust off their sandals. As you go on your mission, this is what you can expect. And then Mark interrupts this mission to tell us the story about John to show us the ultimate rejection the followers of Jesus may face. One writer tells us, and friends, you need to hear this. Whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. Are you a believer? Would you profess to be a Christian? Are you doing that because you'd like to be in heaven one day? Look at what happened to John the Baptist first, and then tell me if you want to be a follower of Jesus. When we share the gospel, do we tell them that? When you witness to your neighbor, when you shepherd your children and your grandchildren to become disciples of Christ, do you let them in on what they're getting into? Do you let them know the cost of following Jesus? Mark puts this here in chapter 6 to tell us when we live on mission for Christ, this is the kind of reception we can expect from the world. John 15 verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And in the book of Mark, we will see later on, this is the call of the kingdom. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, look at what happened to John the Baptist and answer this question for me. Are you prepared to follow Jesus now? Go back to our text. What specifically brought the opposition to John's door? 
John defended what the Bible said about marriage. Does that sound familiar? Look at the current landscape. You don't have to look far. You can't watch Sesame Street without seeing it. You can't shop at Target. You can't watch the Avengers. You can't watch anything, listen to anything, without being bombarded with the world's version of marriage. Robert Al Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, writes this. Imagine our context 20 years from now. You think it's, you think it's crazy now? Imagine our context 20 years from now. Just think of the social changes. We're going to be facing the headwinds of hostility. Are you listening? We're about to find out how many Christians there are in the United States because people are going to be paying a price to be members of our churches. It used to be the case if you told someone in town, I'm a member of such and such church, it might be a badge of honor. Friends, the day is coming where that will not be the case. I want to be very clear, brothers and sisters, where we stand as a church. If you are a member of the church, this is what is expected of you to uphold. The Baptist Faith and Message writes this about marriage. I'm going to put it on the screen for you so that you can read with me. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. This is the baseline. That's what the Baptist faith and message stands, but our authority is the word of God. I want to show you what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 6 to 8. Jesus, the king, says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Let me be clear, friends. There will be a day, soon and very soon, every single word of that is a hate crime. And you could be thrown in jail just for being a part of a church that believes Mark chapter 10. Are you prepared to follow Jesus? Will we, like John, stand on God's truth no matter what the cost? Or will we be like Herod and give in to the pressure so that we can save face and keep our reputation? 
Hebrews chapter 13, the writer says, let the marriage bed be honored by all. 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. When we do that, it's important that we do it in a manner that is worthy of the king. That's why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, we're told to speak the truth in love. That's why Paul tells us to correct our opponents with gentleness. We're supposed to do it with humility as those who are saved by grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I would welcome you to turn there and look at that passage. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Paul lists those who will not enter the kingdom. It's a long list that includes a lot of different sins, but also includes those who would practice the world's current definition of marriage. I'm trying to limit my vocabulary because I know that we have a mixed audience in the room this morning, and I'm hoping you track with me. It's also why I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you can read it for yourself. But Paul lists these sins and says, no one in this list is getting in heaven. It's not going to happen. But, verse 11, and such were some of you. You were like that. You did those things. You were in that kind of relationship, some of you. Verse 11, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so when we speak the truth, we're not doing it as arrogant, self-righteous Christians who've never sinned in our life. We're doing it as co-equal sinners saved by grace. But we do it without compromise. 1 Timothy 6.14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. How long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me be clear. We do not do these things to win a cultural war. We do not hold these arguments to win back the White House. We do these things because we follow a king. This is not just relevant for me as a pastor. It's super relevant for a church that hosts a learning center and takes government money to support educating children. But it's coming to your door. If you're a doctor required to perform certain procedures over people, no matter what your conscience says, if you're a counselor or a teacher in a public school that has certain definitions of what male and female are or are not, if you work anywhere and do anything, this is coming to you. If it has not already. Following Jesus may mean you lose your job. It may and definitely will mean you lose 
your respect and reputation. Brothers and sisters, listen. It may mean you share a prison cell with Paul. And it may mean you die with John. Standing for Christ may cost you everything, but it will cost you something. Friends, I'm not exaggerating or trying to throw in a panic and alarm. But I have stood on dirt floors in churches in other countries where people have been assassinated in their worship service. I have friends who have been put in jail for simply baptizing a believer. And the Bible tells us that's not the exception. That is the norm for those who would take up their cross and follow Jesus. Are you prepared to follow Jesus? Friends, remember when we do the costs, the losses, do not compare to what we gain. Do not compare to our ultimate hope. We may be buried with John, but we will be raised with Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, may we stand for the truth of God's word. Fully confident in God's love for us. And his wisdom in his plan for us. And for his kingdom. Let us pray.